0: The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg
1: I wrote the essay six out of nine essays and uh, the last two essays he explained how keeping the mitzvot by keeping the mitzvot, we redeem the sparks, the holy sparks that are hidden. And we fill the world with godliness. And the same is true when you study the laws of the mitzvot, the halachot of the mitzvot. And he concluded in the last essay that, he says, when Mashiach will come, when the world will no longer be any negativity in the world, will no longer be any impurity in the world, No falsehoods, no concealment. So then the purpose of the prohibitions will be to reach even a higher level. Everything will be within holiness itself to reach even a higher level, a level that a transcendent level. And this is like a continuation that the study of the halakha, the study of the Torah. There's something transcendent about the studying of the Torah that has nothing to do with fixing this world. It's not about fixing this world. But as an end in itself. Study the Torah as an end in itself. It's something that's so transcendent. And actually the two go hand in hand. The reason why the Torah is able to change the world the reason why the Torah is so powerful it has such an impact on the world is precisely because this is not the essence of the Torah the essence of the Torah is not about fixing the world the Torah precedes the world the Torah transcends the world so only something that's so transcendent could have such a radical impact on the world to change transform the world as is if you're somehow related and connected to the world you can't really change the world it's only when you're completely beyond and beyond this world you're totally not defined by this world no relation, no connection. Therefore, then, therefore you're able to have such a dramatic effect and impact on the world. So, so in this essay, that's what he's going to, des- to describe the transcendent aspect of the Torah. The part of the Torah that has nothing to do with this world. Just like you have Hashem. Hashem, we call Hashem HaKadosh. He's holy, transcendent because Hashem is totally transcendent from this world that's why Hashem is able to constantly create the world and sustain the world and down to the nitty gritty precisely because the essence of Hashem is totally transcendent
0: but even the parts of the Torah that deal with this world are absolute truth so it is true it's all transcendent yes.
1: yes that's exactly what he's saying that even the parts of the Torah the Allah and the mitzvot and the details and the specific all the yasheh is really essentially beyond this world. Just like the Jewish people. Yes, the Arizal writes that we're here to fix the world, to mend the world, fix the world. But that's not the essence of what the Jew is all about. The essence of the Jew is that we celebrate our marriage to Hashem. We're about to celebrate Rosh Hashanah in a few days. Tonight is day one of creation. Tomorrow. And Monday is day six, Rosh Hashanah. So we celebrate the marriage, the relationship of the Jewish people in Hashem. And the whole world is almost like a backdrop uh, The highlight the marriage of the Jewish people in Hashem. The end, which is an end in itself. We celebrate our intimacy and oneness and connection with Hashem. What's the highlight of the whole high holidays? Yom Kippur, the fifth prayer, the only day of the year that we have a fifth prayer. In the ilah prayer, which we lock the door, close the gates, and it's only us and Hashem. Like husband and wife, when they lock part of the chuppah, the essential part of the chuppah, the yichud. when they enter into the yichud room, and they lock the door behind them. And the whole universe dissolves. All there is, is the bride and groom. No one else and nothing else exists. In that room, all that exists, the bride and groom. Like Adam and or alone. Nothing else. No one else exists. That's the pinnacle. That's the essence. So it's precisely because we celebrate our marriage and relationship with Hashem as an end in itself. And the whole universe dissolves. And the whole universe is just there just to bring out that marriage and that relationship. That's why we're able to have such an impact in the world. Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shabbaton, the holy, the Shabbos of Shabbos. But every Shabbos, in a miniature way, is the same concept. One day a week, the Jew transcends this world. We have nothing to do with this world. We're in Shabbat Island. We have nothing to do with the world. We cease interacting with the world, we go inward. We withdraw inward, we celebrate ourselves, our families, our relationship with Hashem And it's precisely because we're not defined by the world So much so that we can walk away from the world for 24 hours Therefore, we have the ability The days following Shabbat, the next six days, to have such an impact Such a profound impact on the world Because we're not defined by it. So we can redefine the world. Only someone who's not defined, who's totally beyond, could redefine. When a person is stuck, you have a psychological problem, or you have a problem in your life. When you're stuck, you're stuck. You feel trapped. You feel like caged. There's no exit. There's no way out. But when you talk to someone or connect to someone who's able to completely transcend the situation, is able to you know to really rise above suddenly, now I can move things, now things can I can rearrange and now things there's an opening and there's change is possible. So when you're within the world when you're stuck with the world. You can't fix the world. You can't do tikkun olam if you are the olam. Even if there's some connection, if there's some way defined by the olam, by the world, you're still, in a certain sense, you're still stuck. You can't create a radical departure, or a totally new change, a total change, a total transformation. It's not possible. But it's it's when you're completely beyond, then you're able to make that change. So too with Torah. When we study Torah, it's an end in itself. I'm studying Torah, I'm celebrating my relationship with Hashem. And the whole universe dissolves. There's no universe, there's no world, there's no I. There's no existence. There's nothing. All there is is Hashem. And my being intimate with Hashem. And getting into God's mind. And Hashem is sharing with us how He thinks. And we're engaged in studying the same thing that God is studying. That Hashem is studying. And the things that gives Him pleasure. And that's what we're engaged in. And involved in. And studying with relish And excitement. Because this is what Hashem is doing. This is what Hashem does. So I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not thinking about... That's the essence. That's the core and essence. And when you have that level, then you're able to affect change. Like the Rebbe once said, the Hasidic discourses in Ahren Shal Pesach of the last day of Pesach I think all the other Hasidic discourses the Rebbe would call in after he said it he would call in and they would review it and he would edit it but the Hasidic discourses of the last day of Pesach weren't edited they were like Rebbe said it and the Maimarim, the Hasidic discourses that the Rebbe would say at the beginning of Pesach and the seventh day of Pesach would be a continuation. And the same as with the Hasidic discourse, he would say the Shabbat after the holiday. It was one continuation. But the Hasidic discourse that he gave in Ahren Shal Pesach was independent. It wasn't a continuation of what he said before. It wasn't uh, connected to what he said later. And when the Rebbe would say the Mahmurim, afterwards he would give out in writing because the Hasidim wanted to be careful about every single word, that they captured every word. So the Rebbe gave, it, the Rebbe gave out the Mimer of the the, the of the first days of Pesach, the seventh day of Pesach, the Shabbos, after Pesach. But the, the day of, the last day of Pesach, he, the Rebbe's would not give out the writing. And all the Hasidic discourse that we have were just from memory, the Hasidim... Remember, the Rebbe said it and they wrote it after the holiday, they wrote it. But not from the Rebbe himself. That when we study Hasidus, we always have a goal in mind. I'm studying Hasidus to improve myself. I'm studying Hasidus so I should be able to communicate it to inspire others. I should be able to print it, I should be able to do something with it. There's a mission, there's a goal, there's a purpose. I'm studying in order that I should improve myself, or I should change the world, improve the world, increase that. But once a year, the day of the last day of Pesach, is, it's about studying Hasidus for the sake of studying Hasidus. Not for a goal, not goal oriented, uh, mission oriented, no mission, no goal, just for the sake of studying Hasidus. Um, forget about yourself. Forget about yourself. Forget about the world around you. Forget about your job and your mission, as holy as it is. And just study Hasidus for the sake of studying Hashem's wisdom and for connecting with Hashem. And the whole world dissolves. And this is what the, the, the rabbis did on the last day of Pesach, which represents the end of Pesach, the end of redemption, which, re- which represents Mashiach. Because how are we going to get to Mashiach? How are we going to change the world, transform the world, and turn the world into a Torah world, into a Mashiach, like world? It's when you get the core and the essence. Remember that the essence of Torah is, Torah is transcendent. God is beyond this world. His Torah is beyond this world. The Jew is beyond this world. Nothing to do with this world. Before the world ever existed, it's, it's, it's totally beyond... The whole frame of reference of the universe, of existence. Just connecting with Hashem. Nothing else matters. Learning the same thing that Hashem is learning. Engaging in the same thing that engages Hashem. Giving Hashem pleasure. It's not about me. And it's precisely when, you, when you're so connected. When you have your eye on the ball. You're connected to the core and the essence. That's when you can have such a profound impact on it. Precisely because you're totally beyond this world. The world has no hold on you. The world can't define you or shape you. Instead, you, we are able to redefine and reshape the world and transform it into a Torah world, into a godly world. So instead of wrestling with the world, instead of engaging in the world, instead of fighting the world, instead of even defeating the world, you just rise to a level where the world dissolves. There is no world, it's not. I'm beyond the world, I'm a different place. And then you can change the world. And the Rebbe said that we should learn from this. And every once in a while a person should just close the door, just study hasidus just meditate, reflect. Nothing, nothing to do with anything. Not because of this goal and this mission and this practical aspect. Just, just for the sake of studying, for the sake of studying, connecting, for the sake of connecting. So this is what he's going to explain in this essay. Very powerful essay. It's Brought down many times in Hasidus by other rabbis as well, and it's based on the verse in Psalms, Psalm 119: Psalm David Zemiris Karis Lahu. That when the ark was brought back from the Philistines. You know, when they destroyed the tabernacle in Shiloh, when Eli passed away, fell, fell, off, fell back in his chair and passed away. When he heard that the ark was captured and it led to destruction of the Philistines, and they wanted to get rid of the ark because it was, it was bringing disaster to them, so they sent the ark back. And then the Ark stayed for many, many years, a certain location. And then King David decided to bring the Ark to Jerusalem. So they brought the Ark in a wagon. And uh, Uzzah, one of the priests, was walking along the wagon and then it appeared the ark like lifted up. It appeared that the ark was about to fall out. Fall out. So he, he put his hand to hold up the ark, and he died because the ark was able to carry. The ark was miraculous. The ark was able to carry the ark that contained the tablets. It was able to, from the holy of holies. It was able to carry those who carried the ark. When they crossed the Jordan River, the ark lifted up the priests because they stood on on the side of the other the east side of the Jordan. And when the Jewish people crossed the Jordan, their feet were in the in the water, and the the Jordan River split open, and the Jewish people passed through the Jordan River and entered into the land of Canaan, into Israel, and then the waters returned and the ark lifted up so the priests were on one side and the jewish people were on the other side so the ark lifted up the priests who were carrying the ark and it lifted up the priests and carried them over the water to the other side so the ark that can carry take care of others and carry the priest doesn't need a priest to put his hand there to hold up the ark the ark can carry itself so he died but it says that the reason why King David was very upset that Uzzah died. He was making this journey, returning the Ark back where it belonged. And, um, and he felt terrible. So the matter says that this was a punishment, punishment for King David. Because he forgot a law in the Torah. It says in the Torah that the only way to transport the Ark is on the shoulders of the priests can't be transported on a wagon but it has to be transported by the uh, shoulders of the priests and they actually carried it in a very special way it was two poles on each end so there were four priests but the priests were facing each other face to face not back face to back two in the front two in the back but they were all facing inward And that's how they walk slowly with the Ark. So King David was punished. Why was he punished? Why did he forget such a basic elementary law in the Torah? And because he forgot this law and he transported this Ark through the wagon and ultimately it led to the death of Uzzah, it's because he called the Torah a song. You refer to the Torah as my song. So God says, you're calling the Torah my song? That you will be punished. You're going to forget what every child, every Jewish child and Cheder, and Yeshiva, learns, knows in the Torah, and states clearly that uh, the ark has to be carried on the shoulder, not on a wagon. King David forgot this law. And... Um, and that's why, he was, that's why he was punished that Uzzah died on his watch. So the whole thing is very strange. Firstly, why would King David call the Torah a song? Why would he compare it to a song? And why was he punished? Because he called it a song. So he was punished that he forgot this particular law of you not have to carry the ark on a wagon. that has to be carried on the shoulder. What's the connection? What's the connection between calling the Torah a song and forgetting this law? So the whole thing is, needs explanation.
0: David, you call them songs. Because you refer referred to the laws of the Torah as songs, David was punished by being made to stumble in a manner that even school children know that the ark is to be carried on the shoulders. In the Zohar we find the expression, the praise of Torah and its song. The Torah is a hymn and a song to Hashem.
1: So the Zohar refers to the Torah as a song. The question is, why could you call the Torah, meaning the laws of the Torah, when you're learning the dry technical laws of the Torah, something is kosher or not kosher, it's not exactly poetry, (laughs) it's not exactly a song, you're not writing a song to it. It filled in, this kosher. I mean, it's not exactly, it's, it's, it's a lot of technical details and a lot of minyoshe and a lot of specific laws, nitty-gritty laws. Not exactly a song. It's not mysticism, it's not your soul soars in ecstasy. Why would you call the Torah a song? I'm learning laws. You know, it's one thing you learn something that's soul-stirring, you learn something mystical, you learn something spiritual. It touches your soul. See, soul soars. You feel like singing. Or, or you feel like crying. But how many people cry by, by the Gemara? By the Talmud? They're learning the Talmud and their, their, their soul starts crying. They're so moved and stirred. And a song, you burst out and singing. I'm learning a dry law, technical law, mechanical law. All the details, the 613 mitzvot. Why is that called a song? Continue.
0: Let us understand what is the praise of Hashem when a particular object is forbidden or permitted.
1: So the Rebbe asks, there are many categories in law. Kosher, not kosher. Guilty, not guilty. Obligated, not obligated. Pure, impure. Why does he pick just this option? Permitted, not permitted. There are many categories. The Rebbe says, because all of them fall into this general category. When you say, as we learned earlier in the Tanya, when you say something is mutar or asur, something is permitted, not permitted, it comes from the Hebrew word, it's bound or it's not bound. Whereas either we're lenient and we say we can elevate the spark, we can release the spark. It's trapped. Before we do the mitzvah, before we study the Torah, the spark is trapped. And we say that something is mutar, it means it's unbound, it's untied, I can release it. Or we're strict. And we say, no, it can't be released. It has to remain in prison. No parole, no release. So all of them, guilty, not guilty, obligated, not obligated, kosher, not kosher, Pure impure—it's all the same theme. It's mutar or asur. It's—it's—we're it's going to be lenient. Or we're going to look at it favorably and say yes, we could elevate the spark. We, it's approachable. Or no, we have to reject it. It's impure. We have to reject it. Not kosher. We have to reject it. Guilt. So this is the general theme. That's why he—he—he he, uh, he just mentions forbidden or permitted. The
0: concept is implicit in the verse. How great are your works, O oh God, your thoughts are very deep. Why does the verse make the deed precede the thought? The al will soon explain that from an appreciation of Hashem's great work, one begins to
1: understand the depth of his thought. Because it would make more sense, first comes Hashem's thoughts, and Hashem creates the world with His thoughts. We think and nothing happens. But Hashem creates the world with His thoughts. He thinks and it comes into being. Speaks and comes into being. So should have first said how deep are your thoughts and how great are your actions. Your thoughts lead to action. Bring about action. Why does he say how great are your actions? How deep are your thoughts? So it's how great your actions that help us understand how deep your thoughts are. That's what he's going to explain now.
0: As is known, all the worlds, exalted and the lowly, are dependent
1: on a particular performance of a single mission. So we are basically the Jew is in the driver's seat. Anything that we do in this world has an impact. Not only not only in our own personal lives, but impacts the whole entire universe. we influence the whole entire universe. When we do a mitzvah, we're adding an abundance, a flow of divine energy into this world. We suffuse the world with a new light and a new life and a new energy. God forbid, we don't do the mitzvah. We deprive the world of that tremendous, additional light and life and energy. So the whole world is dependent on us. There's so much riding on us. On the tiniest detail. We think, what difference does it make? What I say, what I do, what I think. No. We have a tremendous impact. Like he's going to say, you can invalidate the sacrifice just by your thoughts, like we learned last time, in the last days. Piggle, one negative thought and you've invalidated the whole sacrifice. You've deprived this world of this tremendous power, powerful surge of energy. Because my thought, the whole world is in the whole world is in my is in my fingertips. The whole world is in my hands. It's a tremendous responsibility and it's, a, it's an awesome privilege. That the smallest slightest movement in this world, the slightest detail, can have such an impact. We know the space shuttle blew up because of a quarter, right? It was worth a quarter, what was it? Uh, One of the shields, something. So a $3 billion spaceship with lives that are incalculable, incalculable, the value of those lives. All was destroyed because of one tiny detail, seemingly insignificant. Everything is so significant. Everything is so meaningful. Everything has such impact. Not only for ourselves, but for the whole world. You know, we we don't we don't live in a vacuum. Whatever we do, really matters. Not only matters to us. Matters to the whole world. To the whole. Matters to Hashem. And to all the upper realms and the angels and the higher levels of consciousness and all the worlds and the divine realm. So the power of one single mitzvah, and it has to be done right. If one detail is off, it doesn't work. It's not going. You're trying to plug in. You're trying to connect. You miss one dot on the internet and you're lost in cyberspace. You get nowhere. One little dot. Yes, that's all it takes. I forgot one little detail. I got one detail wrong. Instead of my right hand, I did it with my left hand. What's the big deal? <laughs> you would have nothing. You didn't do the mitzvah. The sacrifice has to be with the right hand. If you do it with the left hand, it's invalid. I have nothing but I offer the animal and I sprinkle the blood, did everything. Well, I'm sorry. You did it wrong. You did it wrong. You have nothing. The tiniest detail makes all the difference in the world. So whether there's going to be a payday or not depends on the slightest, tiniest detail, getting it accurate, getting it correct. Simple, tiny little detail and make the difference whether the pilot is going to land the plane or God forbid crash the plane. (laughs) Follow instructions. Very simple instructions. If you're going to take a little, well, it doesn't have to be exact. Well, (laughs) we don't know if the people in the plane are going to make it. It has to be precise. Simple. Clear. Precise. Tiniest detail. Don't veer. don't, Don't change. It has to be exact. So the Torah gives our life so much meaning and purpose and makes our life very real. So the Torah is more valuable and more meaningful than anything in this world. Because it's only when you follow the Torah down to the little tiniest detail that it can affect such change and can affect such a, have such a powerful evoke such a powerful response just by being faithful to the last tiny detail there's nothing in this world all the meditation in the world and all the spirituality in the world how can it compare to the power of the Torah. The Torah tells me that all my actions and all my speech and all my thoughts and everything is such could have such an effect not only on myself but my family and my community but the whole entire universe and Hashem Himself. Is there anything more powerful than the Torah? What a gift. Hashem gave us. The world has nothing on the Torah. What does the world offer you? Whatever the world offers you, a billion dollars? Okay, we'll take it. But what Hashem is giving us is that your smallest thing can influence the whole universe. <laughs> That's empowering. That's real. That's reality. What the world offers us in comparison is insignificant in comparison. And that's what makes you sing. When you realize that the whole world is dependent on the Torah, and the one tiny letter in the Torah, and one tiny specific halacha in the Torah could affect and influence the whole entire world, that makes your soul sore, that makes your soul sing. Praise to Hashem, on the infinite depth of His thoughts of His Torah. That every letter and every word in the Torah can make make such a difference. It matters. It really makes such a huge difference. So it it, it helps us understand the power of the Torah. That's why we understand why the, why King David was singing. The Torah caused him to sing and to praise Hashem and to sing. He felt. And he experienced and he recognized the power of the Torah. That the world had nothing, has nothing on the Torah. And that's why he would sing and remember this when he was suffering. When the world offered him nothing but sorrows, King David suffered so much. He had so much sorrows and so many enemies. and He was harassed and he was constantly... Uh, his enemies were constantly harassing him. And, and, and what gave him comfort when he studied the Torah and he realized the power of the Torah? King David was the master of Torah. King David was the only king. And not only was he a king, but he was also the head of the Jewish Supreme Court. He was the sixth in line of the transmission of the Torah, the whole entire Torah. So not only was he king, but he was also the head of the Jewish Supreme Court. He was the one in charge of transmitting the Torah. And that's what he did. He studied Torah. He would would, uh, render verdicts, as the Talmud said. He studied Torah and his his army uh, and Yoav would go fight wars and he would win in the merit of King David studying the Torah. So this is what comforted King David. His being engaged in all the halachot and all the laws and the details and the minyashay and mastering the laws... This is what this is what caused him to sing and to praise and to this gave him the strength not to be dragged down by all this opposition and negativity and sorrows and problems and hardships and difficulties because his heart was so filled with song and praise that he had the Torah. Nothing else mattered. This is what gave him strength. And by singing the praise of the Torah, this was actually effective. uh, King David says, The Torah, your laws, and the detailed laws, and the specific laws, were a song to me, when I was running away from all my enemies, from all those who were were making life very uh, uncomfortable for me. But some, but also Zemiris is a double meaning. It comes from the Hebrew word to cut off. By singing the praise of the Torah, by, by offering the song, it also cut off his enemies. By, by the Torah empowered him. And by not allowing himself to be dragged down by everything that he was facing, all the tsarres that he had from the physical material world, instead he... he he, uh, he was clinging to the Torah and he was singing the praise of the Torah this caused the enemies to be cut off the power of the Torah helped him overcome his enemies and defeat all his enemies so now you understand why King David was singing the song why the Torah was called a song and why he, he was specifically singing the song at the time when he was facing the most challenges the greatest challenges and it's this song that kept him going And it's this song that helped him overcome singing the praise of the Torah helped him overcome all his enemies and all the problems. So it sounds like it's a wonderful thing. (laughs) Still have to understand why he was punished for it. Especially he was singing the song when he needed it most. When he was faced with all his enemies and he had to cut them off. And The only way to cut them off was by Overwhelming them and overpowering them with the power of the Torah—that I'll explain in the in the next half. But right now, first, he's going to explain the the why King David was referring to the Torah as a song and and what the meaning of that is.
2: For example, if an altar offering is valid when it's eternal. Union in the is affected, and all the worlds are elevated to receive their life support, and spiritual sustenance.
1: By one single sacrifice, we elevate all the animal kingdom, the source of the animals, which is the angels above, up until its highest source. And they're elevated into a higher elevation, a much deeper union. And revelation, a new revelation of Godliness. So the worlds are elevated to receive a new flow of energy. In addition to the flow of energy that God, when he created the world, and he's constantly creating the world, but to have an additional flow of energy, and not just a a small addition, but a a whole whole uh, elevated and much higher level of revelation and union This comes about through when the Jew does the mitzvah in this world. We do the mitzvah in this world. That's the effect and impact that we have on the highest realms.
2: However, if the celebrant altered the precise requirement of the law, if, for example, he received the blood of the the offering with his left hand...
1: So the person changed something. Instead of receiving the blood with the right hand, he, he received it with the left hand, which invalidates the sacrifice. Or,
2: or an invalid vessel, or there was a separation.
1: It's a, or there's something, he, there was nothing wrong with him, but there was something wrong with the vessel. Or, there's nothing wrong with him, there's nothing wrong with the vessel, but there's a separation. There's not allowed to be any separation. And there are different types of separations. If there's a foreign body between the priest and the vessel that's a separation there's a separation between the priest and the floor the priest had to walk barefoot on the floor There could be nothing separating him between him and the floor if there's any separation he's not standing on the floor of the temple he's standing on the separation of a piece of carpet or something that invalidates the sacrifice or a separation between him and his clothes can't be any separation between him and his clothes. It has to touch his skin. So any of these things, slightest deviation, it invalidates the whole sacrifice and the effect of the sacrifice is invalidated. That flow, that tremendous flow of energy and the unity and union that would have been affected by the sacrifice is lost.
2: All the elevation of the walls that wouldn't have been accomplished are nullified, as is the life force and sustenance that they would have received from the source of life, the angel of so, blessed being. So, too, through the use of valid fulfilling, there is revealed the supernal intellect of Zerantin, Za Enochu, of Absilut, the source of the life for all the worlds.
1: So, all the worlds were created with God's emotional attributes. God created the world with the six days of creation as the says this refers to the emotional attributes because God's love God loves and therefore the world he needs a world in order to be able to express his love he wants to give so there has to be a receiver he wants to bestow this world with his goodness and kindness so there has to be a world the world really begins with the emotions you know the intellectual is is remote is removed you, you can Intellectual entertains himself he doesn 't need anyone, but you can 't have love unless there 's an object. you love someone or something outside of yourself. so the world comes into being the world begins with god 's emotions because God wants to bestow kindness and love, so therefore he created the world in order he can bestow kindness the god 's mind however, transcends the world this is like the Torah God thinks for himself, and God is sitting alone and thinking and contemplating and and the and nothing else exists. God is entertaining himself. So the world is created with the, uh, God's emotional attributes. But the emotions also have the intellect that sustains the emotions. The, emo- the intellect guides the emotions. And based on the intellect, so too go the emotions. You find children who are immature, have immature understanding and very immature emotions. Adults have a mature understanding, so they have mature emotions. So the emotions are guided by the intellect. So when a person puts on tefillin, you're drawing down a new revelation, a new level of intellect into the emotions. And by drawing down a new insight and a new level of of depth of intellect and drawing it down into the emotions... You're creating a surge of energy into the world. But the world now has a whole new life force and a whole new energy. So that's what we accomplish when we put on tefillin. When we put on tefillin, we're actually sustaining the world. Not only sustaining the world, bringing a whole new life force into this world. So one Jew putting on tefillin, one time putting on tefillin, he's affecting this tremendous... He's having such an impact. He's affecting the whole universe, the divine. He's drawing down the divine intellect into the divine emotions and therefore creating a whole new life force and energy in, in this world. The power of one Jew doing one mitzvah. power of one mitzvah. But in order to do this, the tefillin has to be correct. The straps have to be black. and are many, many, many details that go in to the thrill. And if you deviate by one iota, yeah, you don't have the mitzvah. And if you don't have the mitzvah, you're putting it on boxes, but it does nothing. You haven't done anything. So by doing it correctly, I'm affecting these powerful changes, these powerful influences. And by deviating in the smallest thing, the smallest halacha, I have nothing, zero, zilch.
0: Is the fact that it's defective into the negativity of that?
1: Well, we're going to learn about the the prohibitions in a moment, same as with the prohibitions.
2: Yet through the omission of the required detail, the brain is validated and the intellect departs. The same applies to the detailed requirements of the obligatory commandment.
1: Detail so yes, you're right. The same as with a prohibition. When you do a prohibition, you draw down negative energy into this world. Or it's like the 365 uh, prohibitions correspond to 365 veins. The vein contains the blood, the life force. What if you have a hole in your vein, a puncture in your vein? The life floors, Your life force just flows out. Your life just flows away from, flows out. So, the divine holy energy, if it's not contained properly, if it's not channeled properly, if it's not contained properly by the prohibitions and the boundaries of the Torah, if you trans- transgress and trespass and you puncture the vein, then the life force flows outward and you, you lose your life force, you lose your life. And the same is with all the worlds. When we follow the 365 prohibitions, then we make sure that the divine energy flows in the right place. And if not, God forbid, the divine energy dissipates and and it actually empowers negative forces. So it all depends on the tiniest detail. When is it considered a prohibition? If you do one thing and you do it wrong, then you violated the prohibition down to the tiniest detail. So he says, so he's going to say, when you realize the power of a mitzvah, how the Torah empowers us, you know, conventional wisdom is that we're insignificant and nothing matters and we don't matter Surely whatever we do doesn't matter. Whatever we say doesn't matter. Whatever we think doesn't matter. Live for the moment. Have fun. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you feel good. There's no objective truth. There's no truth. Nothing matters. And the Torah tells us the exact opposite. We matter. Everything we do, say or think matters. The tiniest detail the whole world the whole universe is hanging with bated breath depend- and is dependent on our slightest action this is so in power this makes our lives so meaningful and real so in comparison what does the world have to offer what's the world offering me money power fame indulgence Momentary pleasure. It's meaningless. It passes. It's gone. But here, the Torah is offering me a moment of eternity. I am going to change the world forever. When I do a mitzvah, that mitzvah is forever. And the effect of the mitzvah is forever. And the impact of the mitzvah is forever. You put on tefillin, that effect and that impact is forever. You lit a Shabbat candle, any mitzvah that you do, that mitzvah is forever and is eternal and it affects the world forever and ever. That's so empowering. So have a choice. What the world offers me, <laughs> what the Torah is offering me, I'll take the Torah any day The Torah This causes me to sing With joy What a life Every moment is meaningful Everything I do Say or think is meaningful Has such an impact How could you compare To a meaningless life Live for the moment or a life that's so real and meaningful and purposeful and every moment is an opportunity to become an eternal moment how could you compare the two? so when King David was having tzadz and, and he was being pursued and harassed and all the problems that he had all he did was he immersed himself in the code of Jewish law in the Allahah in the laws in the 613 Mitzvot and, and re- realizing or recognizing what the Torah is telling me is your, your life is so valuable your life is so meaningful you're, you're, you're like at the center of the whole universe you're in the driver's seat so, what's, what's so whatever, whatever I'm going through is insignificant in comparison to what I have so empowering so inspiring, so uplifting, it caused King David to sing with joy. And this cut off his enemies. Because he had no power over him. They couldn't get him down. They couldn't drag him down. They couldn't depress him. They couldn't, on the contrary, he, he got strength. The Torah fortified him. The Torah strengthened him. The Torah gave him energy and strength. And therefore he was able to overcome all of his enemies. It's a powerful way to live. It's what kept the Jewish people going. The people of the book, how do we survive all the pogroms and all the persecutions and the tsars and living in a harsh, hostile world, didn't appreciate the Jew and was our enemy, arch enemy. And 99.9% of the world attacked us and opposed us actively opposed us and hated us for a hundred different reasons. What gave us the strength? We always clung to the book, to the Torah. The details, the 613 mitzvot, and all the halachot, and studying it, and mastering it, and relishing it, and realizing that every detail is so meaningful and significant. The whole world depends on it. So to the Jew, I'm on top of the world. The Jew felt he was on top of the world. The world had no effect in him. I'm in the driver's seat. They think they are the world. And they are attacking me. And I'm down under. No, they have it all wrong. When I'm studying the halacha, I'm on top of the world. I'm in the driver's seat. They can't touch. Flip everything upside down.
0: This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.